Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. So I'm, I am often criticized when I, when I lecture about getting done too close to the hour and, and not leaving enough time for questions and answers. So I really want to leave more time for Q&A today. And, and seeing as there's already questions popping in, that's, that's imperative. But I want to start with this concept of begin with the end in mind. We're talking about side effects tonight. And we're talking about how to, how to um, prevent side effects, how to um, talk our way around side effects, how to treat side effects, all that kind of stuff. So uh, beginning with the end in mind is important because the, the clearer we are with the vision of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to accomplish it, it's going to help us guide us through the minefield of little things and, and maybe even big things that can go around. So beginning with the end in mind, what's the end point? What are we looking to do? And, and I think that's pretty obvious and we might have little variations on this, but we could all agree probably that we're trying to get the AHI down to some reasonable number. And, and I like to use a 50% reduction in AHI under 10. And if I get that kind of result, my physicians are happy. I want to, but, but just getting the AHI down doesn't mean much. And we know that because there's not a strong correlation between AHI and quality of sleep, between AHI and all-cause morbidity, between AHI and cardiovascular events. We know that that correlation isn't strong. So HI alone isn't good enough. But when we start to add, reduce, or eliminate the subjective signs and symptoms, improve the quality of life, now we start to get somewhere because usually that does correlate with um, a lower hypoxic burden, a better sleep event for, for our patients. So we know that getting more oxygenation, getting better sleep, better sleep, not just a lower HI. So that, that's a little technical talk, but we're not going to get deep into that. And, and then I also want to, as an accomplishment, get the patients to wear the device, let me think, seven hours, seven nights, not 4.5 hours, five nights out of seven, like we have for appliance therapy, not five nights out of seven for six hours, five and a half to six hours, like we do with Inspire therapy. I want this to be a very robust adherence. And then, ah, to the topic at hand, I want to minimize side effects. How do I do that? I also want to earn physician's trust. I also want to be cost-effective. So there's a lot of things going on that's an endpoint. And notice I said earn physician's trust. And that's going to be an important little teeny piece of tonight's conversation. And being cost-effective, not price-conscious. Price is what I paid today for the car. Cost-effectiveness is how much it costs me to operate that car over the next three to five years. And if the price of the car, price that I paid, was very low, but the operational costs were very high. Some of those operational costs are obvious, like side effects, like more appointments, like repair, remake, like not earning physicians' trusts. What does that cost us in terms of not getting those referrals in those cases? So this idea of price versus cost effectiveness. So there's a lot of outcomes and objectives that want to occur. And I also want to be thinking not just about what's good for me, or what's good for my patients. I do want to focus on that. I want it to be easy for me to deliver the case. I want the patient to be happy and comfortable and compliant and not have side effects. But there's other stakeholders involved. And, and I think, and this is a little bit of Murphy getting on a soapbox, but I think that we've somewhat neglected physicians and payers when we thought about who are the other stakeholders. What does the insurance company want to see with a the therapy? What do the physicians want to see? The physicians want control of the patients. The physicians want to see objective results. They want to see the patient back for the follow-up sleep test. Uh, payers want a device that works, prevents other comorbidities from getting worse. So it has to be uh, strong in terms of the outcomes. So you, you see how all of these different stakeholders are involved. So it's not just a discussion tonight about the narrow spectrum of side effects, but thinking about 
where do side effects fit in this comprehensive view of this overall patient care? And we know that um, our own American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, I'm, I'm a member, I'm a diplomat of the American board, et cetera. Um, they will tell us that side effects are a part and parcel, and they are a part and parcel of any medical treatment, any dental treatment. There's going to be side effects. There's side effects to CPAP. It's not without its side effects. Um, it's funny because when I hear um, Michael talk in the two-day courses, uh, my part where I come in often is right after he's talking about what's the risk of doing nothing? Wow. So what's the risk of doing nothing versus side effects? It's death. So, I mean, it's premature death. It's losing six or seven years of life. So it's a, it's a significant consequence of delayed, avoided, incomplete, discontinued treatment. But our own AADSM has this incredible document that's out that does a really nice job of uh, talking about whether it's TMJ, uh, soft tissue, occlusal changes, uh, damage to teeth, restorations, um, repair, remakes, those kinds of things. And it sort of breaks them down into categories talking about the different types of side effects. So I'm, I'm gonna use that as an organizational theme. I won't be to the letter, but you'll, you'll see a similarity to that design. The, they also talk a lot in many of the sections when you read this document about palliative care about watchful waiting. I'm not saying that we shouldn't occasionally watchful wait. I'm not saying that we shouldn't sometimes not do something about a side effect because maybe the treatment outcome is far more important than the impact of a very minor side effect. It's not a toxic side effect. It's not a side effect necessarily that causes discontinuation of treatment. But I think palliative care and watchful waiting are sometimes too easy for us to jump onto instead of uh, stepping up a little bit more and being stronger on the preventive side. So I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit stronger approach to that when we look at these different categories of different kinds of uh, side effects. So here's what I drew up just to try and keep it simple and not go into too many of the weeds. So I put TMJ, internal issues, occlusal changes, and then appliance issues, and then I put down a couple of things that can go wrong. We could have muscles, we could have joints, we could have tissue irritation, dry wet mouth tooth movement, bite changes, you can, you can figure out. These are the common things that I think we end up talking about with patients, um, sometimes looking at and looking for ourselves. Sometimes it's what, what we hear back in feedback from physicians when we survey them, at, which we've done several times. At our company, we've surveyed physicians and said, you know, why don't you refer more patients for oropines therapy? And they talk about loss of control. They talk about side effects. They talk about TMJ issues. They, they even talk about um, many of them still think today that it's not covered by insurance. I'm at the AASM meeting, as Michael said, and, and I'm talking to physicians on the floor, talked a lot of them on the floor in the last two days. And they ask us about the devices we've got there. And then a very common follow-up question is they go, what does this cost? What does this cost? And, and what I spent some time talking to the sales team about is to answer that question first by saying, well, actually it's covered by medical insurance. The same thing that I would say to a patient, because really the question is not, what does this cost? They're really trying to ask the question, where does this fit in the scheme of how things get done? And so sometimes there's just this, sometimes there's a lack of knowledge on the part of the physicians or, or there's a lack of knowledge on the part of payers on how some of these things work. But, but this is gonna be our, our, our matrix that we're gonna try and fill in tonight. And then we're gonna look at how do we manage some of these things from a consent standpoint? How do we then, after we've talked about these kinds of side effects with a patient in a consultation, how do we prevent them from occurring? And then finally, because we're not going to be successful always, 100% of the time, preventing them, how do we treat? 
So that's going to be our matrix. And so as we build this matrix coming through here, we'll talk about all of the different components of uh, consent, prevention, and treatment. So you can look up uh, on the American Medical Association, the ADSM, pretty much any website you want, what informed consent is. But I want to tell you one thing that's very important about informed consent. If you talk to a lawyer, if you talk to counsel and attorneys, and more specifically, if you talk to medical attorneys and medical malpractice attorneys, they will say that the document is far less important than the conversation you have with the patients. And I want to repeat that. The signature on the bottom of a piece of paper that might not have been read or understood by the patient is often considered in court as being less important than the conversation you had with the patient about what's in the document. Jamie Bachensky um, from Chicago, who's done a lot for us uh, in our profession, don't sleep medicine, told me that um, I should, in my mind, create an outline and I should have a conversation with each and every patient about the risks and the benefits of oral appliance therapy and make sure that that patient thoroughly understands in the conversation that we have a witness in the room and then we sign that document together and give a patient a copy of that informed consent that's confirming the conversation we had. So that's our first principle from a consent standpoint. And it's a very, very simple principle. A principle that I learned from a dental management consultant about a hundred years ago who said, inform before you perform. No surprises. You're getting the questions already, man. So I, I got to hop in on this one. Your job. It's your job. Yeah, it's my job. So I'm not even going to apologize. We see in the, I'm going to add flavor to this question. We see constant informed consent, even in marketing and advertising in medicine from pharmaceutical companies, right? This is the fine print that the bidder reads off at the end of the you know commercial. Yep. So here's the question. How do you document your conversation in your notes to show that that conversation took place separate from the informed consent? So in, in, a, in my template, um, I have a, a statement that says I reviewed the informed consent document and explained the risk and benefits. So thank you for asking the risk and benefits to the patient. And then I have a very stock conversation that is repeated almost verbatim at least from a structural standpoint, it would sound very similar if you heard it 10 times. I might be able to point out if you listen to it on a recording, slight differences, but I say that there's generally four things that we worry about with oral appliance therapy. And then I go through those four things and I talk about them and I talk about how in, in many cases that, you know, for example, if we're talking about bite changes and we talk about um, how we're going to prevent that and I lay all that out for them, I say, but at the bottom line is, if you don't get your bite back every morning and your bite changes and I pause, I go, that's okay. Because your airway is far more important than your bite. And then I stop and I go, but I'm a dentist. And Dr. So-and-so, who's your dentist? Cause I'm, I'm not their dentist, is a dentist. And we like teeth to touch. And so we get a lot more worked up about teeth touching or not touching than our patients normally do. And certainly physicians aren't that excited about whether or not teeth touch, as long as you're able to breathe better at night and live longer. The patients get that. And so that informed com component, if we're going to talk about jaw muscle soreness and I say, and, and, and I try to give some percentages. So I might say, for example, so if I, if I bring your jaw forward too quickly or too far and I go, and I don't know what that is because 
I've never brought your jaw forward before. And you don't know what that is because you've never had your jaw brought forward before while you're sleeping. And right now, when I have you in and I'm, I'm taking the impressions in the bite, I'll say, does that feel comfortable? And you'll say, yes. And I'll say, it doesn't mean very much. <laughs> I'm asking you if it feels comfortable for 30 seconds or two or three minutes while I take impressions of bite. But wow. when you sleep eight hours, you might find something else. And when I ask you to touch your toes, I always use this analogy. When, when I ask you to touch your toes and you can't, and I kind of push you back down so that your arms reach down and you touch your toes and you tell me the next day your hamstrings are sore. I'll say, well, I'm not surprised because I sort of forced you to stretch beyond your comfort zone. Right. And if that happens, then we'll try maybe every other night learning how to touch your toes. And if we're going too far, maybe we'll back you up. But that doesn't, then I say, but that doesn't happen very often. And I tell them that happens about one out of 20 or one out of 25 times. It's about a five or 4% incidence where somebody says, yeah, I woke up my jaw muscle a little sore. Well, hell yes. They slept for eight hours with their jaw, 50% into their protrusive range of motion, and they're not used to doing that. That might feel a little weird, and they might report that as soreness. But if you tell them that might happen, they're less worried than calling you up in a panic. And then, and then the other part of this informed consent, I would argue, is following up the next morning, I text my patients, I get permission to text them, and I text them and I say, hey, Michael, Mark Murphy here, good morning. I wonder how you slept with your new device last night. And now we can ward off those questions. Well, like you said, that sometimes they go, like you said, my jaw was a little sore, but man, I slept great. Yeah. And my spouse said I didn't snore. And I'm like, fantastic, great start. Let me know how the muscle soreness is. If it persists, let's try every other night. So we were able to head those things off. If if they if they have a dry mouth, I talk about taping. If they have a wet mouth, I tell them, I don't have a fix for that. You just got to change your sheets <laughs> and pillowcases more often. And I make a joke, right? Yeah. I tell them that with the type of precision devices we're using, we don't have to worry about tooth movement. We've got studies that show that. But with some of the other older style devices we do, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the bite changes and I tell them how important it is to get their bite back in the morning. And, and I do things like this. I'm responsible for pulling your jaw down and forward. I'm responsible for helping open your airway enough so that you breathe better at night. And I'll do that every night for you. That's what this device does. You're responsible for getting your bite back in the morning. And if you don't do it, yep. well, it's not the end of the world. And yep. I go to the other part that I described earlier, but I want them to know that's their responsibility. And yeah. then I do one more thing during my exam because I want to have a benchmark. So I take a piece of mine all bite paper, which isn't particularly thin. And I say, bite together. I said, now I'm going to check your bite, bite together, hold. I can't pull that out. And I say that, try the other side, can't pull it out. I go, all right, I want you to remember that, that I had you bite on that paper and I couldn't pull it out. Cause in three months or six months or two years from now, you might come in and say to me, Hey, I feel like my bite's changed. I don't, I don't feel like my back teeth are touching the same. And I go, really? I go, well, come on in, let me check that. And I'm going to put the same piece of paper in there and check. And I'm going to tell you, I have said to patients six months or nine months later, when they say, I feel like my bite's changed, I'll come in and say, well, let me check. I'll put the bite paper and I go, bite together. Can't pull it out. Bite together. Can't pull it out. I go, well, you're right. They go, well, what do you mean? I was right. I, the paper was biting. I go, no, you're right. You feel like your bite's changed. Yeah. But it hasn't changed. Yeah. You feel like your bites change because you spend every night now with a new bite and every day you have to get back your old bite. And that doesn't feel the same as when 24 hours a day you had the same bite. That right. feels different. You're right. Yeah. And, it, and it's comforting to them to know that they're not, you know, hypochondriac or worried about weird things. Right. By the way, there's, there's other things we say like a delivery of the device and, and people have heard me say this. <clears throat> I tell them, Hey, this device, especially like with Evo, that little flexible material, I go, this is going to feel crazy tight when you first put it in. I go, crazy tight is good. 
Because if it feels really comfortable today, it might be a little bit loose in three or four days when you get used to it. So a little snug is good today. That's different than pinching or cutting. If it pinches or cuts anywhere, tell me and I'll adjust that. But I don't want to adjust for tightness today. Now, if it's still tight and driving you crazy in three days, I'll adjust it, but not today. Yeah. Put it in. Does it feel tight? Yeah. Pinching or cutting anywhere? No. Great. Let's try the lower rib. So there's this setting up expectations. Yeah. Inform before you perform. Inform before they feel something. If you put it in, and you didn't talk to them about it feeling tight. And they go, oh my God, it feels tight. You go, let me adjust it. And, right. and now three days later, you got a loose device and you're remaking. Yeah. So there's this setting of expectations and fulfilling of expectations. It's informing before you perform. Yeah. No surprises. That's same so important in the informed consent. Yeah. The same exact conversation, but after you perform is defending. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's excuses. Mark. Yeah. That was amazing. You put a quarter in the machine and you just, <laughs> so Dr. Tao Link asked in the Q&A, this is great verbiage for my sleep champion. Is this being recorded, please? Uh, so for everybody else that's watching, yes, it's being recorded. Uh, not for yes. him. But it's not recorded yeah. for him. It'll be $9.95. <laughs> yeah, no, everybody's going to get a link uh, tomorrow. You guys can watch it, go on our website, check it out. Yes. Uh, there's three of you with your hands raised. I'm going to move on, uh, let Mark move on here, but if okay. you have questions, please throw them in the Q and a, we will stay until we get through them. Roger that. Okay. Cool. Thanks, man. So good. So this idea of informed consent and covering off and now you don't have to cover off the same things I do. You don't have to talk about the same thing I do, but I talk about, uh, I say the first thing is tooth movement. And then the second thing I talk about is dry and wet mouth. And I can kind of cover those off pretty quickly. And then I get to uh, sore muscles and I have a little bit more of a discussion like I just did with you about that. And then I said, the big one though is bite changes. That's the one that we're really still at risk for. And that's the one we really try to manage around. And that's why I even making these little, I call them morning occlusal guides or morning realigners or bite getter backers. And then I say, it's kind of like a dog chew toy, but you might not need it. Some of my patients, a lot of my patients never use that. I don't use one. I get up in the morning, my bite feels wackadoodle. <clears throat> and sometime maybe uh, 30 minutes, an hour or two in the morning. My bite's back and I live happily ever after. But if I got, I tell them, if, if I got till 11 or noon, one o'clock, and I noticed my bite still felt funny, I should go get that dog chew toy, put it in and play with it till I could get my back teeth to touch again. And that's what the, the mod game IPs allow you to do. So you've got this storyline about um, all of the things that devices can do. You set the expectations that they're not as big a deal as they might think they are. You give them an idea of which ones are already mitigated for by the types of devices you're using, what you do to prevent the others in that story. And then in the worst case scenario, what happens? Well, would tooth movement or a little sore muscle or a bite change be a reason to discontinue treatment? Well, I, I hope not because that airway is more important. So it's really also setting up this conversation about where the airway fits in this medical treatment model. All right, so now we've had these great conversations and now I've taken my impressions, I've taken my bite and what do we do? Then we make choices. This is the hardest part of the conversation. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it because it's gonna sound like a commercial if I do and I, I, I don't wanna do that. But today we have a lot different, I would argue we have a lot better choices for device designs than we did five and 10 and 30 years ago when I made my first device teaching with Keith Thornton down at the Pankey Institute. They're less bulky. 
They're more precise. Uh, we can design uh, bilateral symmetry. We can uh, create little contours of acrylic and design those in that protect the commissures of the lip from little metallic parts and pieces and screws. We can put 90 degree posts in that hold the mandibular position stable so we don't have to over protrude the patient. There's a lot of things we can do by choosing certain types of device designs that uh, make a huge difference in, in the amount of protrusion, let's call that the amount of dose that we have to apply to the mandible in terms of advancing it, and, and therefore will impact the outcome, the frequency, and, and maybe the severity of the side effects. So if I start to look at muscles and joints, I think we would all easily agree that the further I advance the mandible, the greater is the likelihood that I'll have muscle or joint discomfort or pain. I think we would all agree that if I had unintentional, and, I, and I'm gonna use that word very specifically, unintentional asymmetrical advancement of the mandible. In other words, if, uh, if the patient screwed one side of a herpst more than the other and, and cockeyed their mandible in terms of its path, or if I made those parts and pieces by hand instead of in a jig or instead of in a uh, computer simulated artificial intelligence design software so that it could accidentally go in a cockeyed direction, I run the risk of asymmetrically advancing that mandible and causing some discomfort. So this whole idea of uh, muscles and joints and TMD, TMJ problems or discomfort that physicians look at and list when they say why they don't use more appliances is somewhat preventable um, through a design phase. Irritation, um, the smaller a device is, the less obtrusive uh, parts of the device are, the more that we can create comfort contours around screws or uh, nuts and bolts, um, uh, arms, uh, advancement mechanisms, it makes a significant difference. I, I was talking, to, I was actually talking to somebody at supper tonight that was talking about a rather large, heavy patient who was very uncomfortable wearing one of our Evo devices. And it's because their cheeks were getting wiggled up and caught up in the, in the posts. And it, it's hard to hear that, but you know, if you think about a certain type of phenotype, a certain BMI, a certain size type patient with a certain type of tissue tone in their cheeks, that might not be the best design for them. So it isn't like I sit here always in my high prosomus tower saying that everything should be a prosomus device. That's not true. Um, I, I think I find a lot of reasons when I would use a precision device like that, but there are times when the device design might not be right for the right patient. You can picture somebody with some really floppy cheek tissue, probably needs something that isn't on the lateral aspects. And whether that's going to be a a dorsal or a herpst or a prosomnus iterative advancement arm, that might not be the best design for them if they're easily irritated in their cheek tissues. You might have, that's maybe a time when you when you make Keith Thornton's day and you come in and do an, an anterior hook to design like a tap. Uh, also dry and wet. There's a, I'm a three-dimensional bite believer. And I believe that we have to consider taking the mandibular position bite relationship and advancing the mandible into the right position. And that position has a three-dimensional characteristic. That means uh, horizontal movement, it means vertical movement, and, and it could even mean pitch and yaw, but not very often. But let's think just now for horizontal and vertical. And that vertical component is very important. Now I would argue, and, and, and the people that are using acoustic pharyngometry would feel differently. I would argue that I'm more concerned with the horizontal component advancing the mandible 
to open the airway than I am the vertical component, but I do add vertical sometimes. Whereas somebody with pharyngometry might use a lot more vertical early and be a little less concerned with the horizontal. Well, I'm not going to stay up nights worried about that. We both believe in a three-dimensional position. We just take a little different twist and emphasis to it. But we do know that the lower the vertical, uh, but still enough vertical so that we get clearance, we have strength of material and all of that from a design characteristic, the easier it will be for the patient to get their lips together. We know that the easier it'll be for the patient to get their lips together, the easier it will be for them to nasally breathe. And they'll probably be in a more therapeutic position. There's a recent paper that talked about lip taping and its impact on the efficacy of oral appliances. And it would be, I would argue, easier to get lip competency and lip taping with less vertical. Does that mean I wouldn't add vertical? No, I didn't say that. I said I would add vertical when I need that to help get the patient in a therapeutic position. And if that means I had to compromise that lip position, I would do so to get them into a therapeutic position. But that might mean that they're gonna have a more difficult time with lip competency and be more challenged to tape. I see you coming up for a question, Michael. Yeah, man. Uh, you just keep saying things that keep the questions coming. So I'm going to rattle oh. off a couple sure. so we're not overwhelmed at the end. Uh, Dr. Nicole asked, uh, can we get a detailed video in our study club that she's part of on your informed consent analysis explanation? Is that cool? Hey, um, above and beyond what we've done tonight? Yeah. Um, I suppose we could make one. Right on. I thought you'd say yes. Appreciate that. <laughs> she, she asked the question, man. I can't even, I can't deny it. It was in there. Um, separate one, uh, just a FYI, we got somebody that already got the 50% off. So they like the fact that you're on sale. There's four left. Uh, and someone else just asked if we can post the link in the chat. So I'm going to ask our tech team that's on the back end. I don't have that. Can you guys please do that? Third one, legit question. Uh, mustard stains that is not a legit question <laughs> I, which one holds most color maybe we can hold that till later but somebody actually asked it so it, it's a, it's a great question and I, and I don't really have anything on the bio gunk and the staining in terms of side effects but i probably should because indirectly that could cause some irritation as well but if we took all the device materials out there and we took um milled polymethyl methacrylate milled mg6 technology material and then actually, even if we took uh, the, the most common materials that um, CPAP Master made out of, they all do pretty well in terms of not taking up biogunk and stain and being very easy to keep clean. That's good stuff. When we start to go across soft liners, more porous acrylics, and by that I mean bench cured or lab cured, but not control cured in an industrial setting, or we go to the printed nylon materials, they become more and more porous. The printed nylon materials are about 30 times more likely to stain and that's measured with a colorimeter change which maybe isn't a fair way to measure it it's just a quick and easy uh, uh mustard stain wine blueberry and uh, turmeric are the four things usually used in staining studies they use the chemicals from those and i'm not sure you can always equate that to the amount of bio gunk but I, I would feel comfortable making the designation that the more gunky something takes up a stain the more easy the bacteria and germs could live on it so the the nylon materials take up a um, it's a scientific term, you, you may not be familiar with it, but a shit ton of stain. And it's just a shit ton of stain. And, that, and that's a challenge for that. I like those devices. They're, they're fairly good from a um, accuracy standpoint and a precision standpoint. They're not bad at all. That's second best to the, to the milled precision platforms. And then some companies have chosen to make a milled platform and then line it with soft liner. Comfort, love it, comfort. But now we got the gunk and we got the stain. So that's, that can be a challenge. And that fits right into the tooth movement idea. Uh, so 
the more the more precision fit of a device, the less likely you're ever going to see tooth change. We've done two-year studies. We're doing a four-year study now at University of Pacific with the polymethyl methacrylate material, the PMA, and we're doing an EVO study looking at no tooth movement and all the early indications that it's not published yet are showing that we're still not seeing any tooth movement, which is great. But if we, if we do a ball clasp design, uh, we'll see tooth movement. If we do a printed nylon without a full coverage strap, we'll see more tooth movement. If we do a coverage with the printed nylon, we'll see some tooth movement. And then the literature even suggests that some of the cold cure acrylics, because they don't fit that well everywhere, allow for a little bit of tooth movement. And so the degrees of tooth movement are what are important. Is that the end of the world? God, no. If somebody develops an open contact because they have ball clasps in a device, but they could breathe better at night, I would say toughen up and live with that. I would certainly say that. But those were preventable. So from a design standpoint, they're preventable. Um, bite changes, that's simple. The further I push the mandible forward, the harder it's going to be for most patients to get that jaw and that bite back in the morning. We see that routinely. When I've got to take a patient out, three, four, five, I've got a patient right now, I, I don't even want to say this out loud, but maybe I started them too far posteriorly or they're, they just look at the cash register, but he wants an upper eight. And, and I'm just like, and he says he gets his bite back, no problem. So, but it, it's, um, that's a lot of movement. And I'm just worried that he won't be able to get his bite back. And then having some sort of a morning occlusal guide. I presented a poster at the ADSM this year where a, a dentist in Fargo, North Dakota, Shandra Rosenfeld, I hope she's on. She, uh, she made a patient, uh, the same kind of morning occlusal aligner I would have made last year. And it was out of uh, these little beads that melt and do a nice job. And I like them because they're cheap and they're easy to use. But this one melted on the dashboard. And so the patient didn't have it. He had moved to Detroit and he didn't worry about it. And his bite changed. And so we were able to take his digital models that we had stored at Personas and recreate a mock for him from his MIP position and able to recapture his bite. Now it hadn't been gone six months. If it had been six months or a year, maybe we wouldn't have got his bite back. It had been a matter of you know several weeks, but it, it took us a couple of weeks and we were able to get his bite back. Breaking and repairing. Well, we know that there's a uh, about a 13% incidence of breakage um, downstream and we're requiring a prepair and an intervention appointment. That's from uh, published data in uh, a study that was done in 2014. It's been repeated and presented at several meetings with a much larger N uh, and the data is roughly the same, but that one um, they, have, they have not published yet. So, so we know that's still similar, but that digitally processed milled devices and printed devices both have a much lower breakage and repair incidence. And you know what? That doesn't surprise you. When you look at those devices, um, the, the math on those is much better. When I look at my own last 100 EVOs, last 100 MG6 technology materials, you know, I've got four that I've adjusted at delivery, a couple that I've adjusted after delivery. I've had a couple that have broken posts. I've had one that came loose. You know, but when you start to add that up, that's significantly lower than that 13% incidence. It's significantly lower than the repair remake factors we see with other traditional co-cure metal to plastic attached devices. And so again, it becomes a design characteristic that we can choose. From an allergy standpoint, uh, even our polymethyl methacrylate, our, our milled control cured PMMA materials, they leach so little monomer that we could almost say they're monomer free, but you can't actually say that. But they leach so little that we've had people who were allergic to acrylics that were able to wear many of the acrylic platforms that we had because they're milled. They would be able to wear an Avant platform, for example, that's milled because they're just not gonna leach enough monitor for that patient to have a reaction. Well, with the MG6 materials, 
moving beyond that, we just really haven't seen an allergic reaction to any of the MG6 materials. So that's been really exciting. That particular polymer has characteristics that are so inert, it's, it's delightful. Um, so it, here's a list of, of staying consistent with the, the four categories, the eight different subsets, and thinking to ourselves, all right, I had to talk about all these. Now, how do I make decisions and choices better as I go through my process and protocol for selecting what a patient's gonna wear to mitigate, minimize, prevent um, those um, side effects from happening. Uh, Michael, you wanna jump in with more questions now before we move to the page next or what do you think? Yeah, I just, I was like, I'm not supposed to be the presenter here. It felt awkward being the only other one on camera. Yeah. Um, going back to your, uh, the open bite, wet and dry mouth. Um, so Tal asked the question, um, he says he had a patient in today. He has a herp. Uh, patient has a herps, full upper and lower uh, implant retained denture. Everything's working fine, but opens his mouth after an hour or so. They've tried elastics, chin strap. What do you recommend? Are they taped? Towel. Mouth tape. Try it out. Yeah. Any any I particular use, uh, the brand? Yeah, the brand I use is 3M. Medipore, M-E-D-I-P-O-R-E. -E. Um, I've had a couple of patients uh, with facial hair that told me that they used uh, different paper tapes and they had to use longer strips to get to some skin. And so they've got this big X going across, which I can only imagine with button eyes and an X going across, that'd be kind of scary. Um, we, we just watched a movie called uh, Coraline with my granddaughter where they have these button eyed, Never mind, it's just spooky. It's a very spooky, cartoony, Tim Burton kind of thing. But uh, yeah, that, the tape mouth, when I, when I go to bed and I put this metaphor tape over my mouth and, and I haven't kissed my wife and I come over, and I'm, you know, she, <laughs> kind of funny. And the grandkids think I look kind of stupid, but they've actually gotten used to it, but it's very effective. Now for me, the metaphor tape doesn't work great. And I've got four or five days of facial hair growing. It just doesn't stick really well. So then I have to make it larger or shave before I go to bed. So, uh, so, so that happens. And, and, he, and even if you tape, if you've had um, some alcohol close to bedtime, you can still overcome the dry mouth there. Yeah. So that's what I would think. Cool. Okay. Uh, and then just two shout outs, man. Uh, we have somebody from Paris, France, Woo. hanging out with us right now. Super cool. And uh, also uh, Dr. Abby has a patient that's out seven millimeters and patient's comfortable, mind blown. I know, I know. My guy <laughs> wants an eight, he's at six and one. So he's at seven with you and I'm like, He's screwing up, by the way, I did a poster last year talking about dose and how much advancement and stuff like that. And he's really screwing up my averages. I'm glad he's not in it because that would really <laughs> increase those averages a lot. So what do you do when something happens? Hmm. What do you do when something happens? Well, you, you got to go find a happy place or something like that. But I've got these three rules that I'm going to share with you that I think keep us between the rails. And that's do the right thing. Sometimes it's hard because sometimes there's an economic impact to that. But do the right thing, fix a device, make a new device. Um, if, if I screwed up the bite uh, and it's asymmetrical and I've got the patient wackadoodle off the side, eat, eat the charge for a new device, it's gonna happen. Do, just do the right thing. Do what you gotta do to get that patient in therapy. You know, there's a, there's a big disparity between some of the older devices, you know, in the 60 to 65% range of efficacy to, to what we're seeing with some of the newer devices that are getting into the 90s. And so everything we can do to mitigate that 
that gap and close that gap between um, patients falling out because of side effect management. And that's going to happen whether I'm a 90% efficacy device designer or 60%. I'm going to have patients who develop side effects. And if they fall out of therapy because of those side effects, um, and that was preventable somehow because I didn't do the right thing, then, then I would argue shame on me. Now, I understand that if that's happening, you know, 50 or 60% of the time, and the doing the right thing becomes financially challenging, uh, then you really have to look at your techniques and your protocols. So that's probably where it's breaking down. The second thing is do your best. And, and that's hard because um, sometimes we're motivated to find a lower cost solution. And when we do that, um, sometimes we aren't really doing our best or choosing our best when we know that there's a better device or a better solution or something with less side effects. And so I, I don't think it, it's a, this is a real moral philosophical challenge and I don't wanna go down this road It'd be a whole nother webinar, but if if there's a 20% or we think there's maybe a 24%, but if there's a 20% gap between the entitlement um, efficacy we can get and what we're actually getting with older style devices, is it fair to the patient? Is it fair to our physicians? Is it fair to the payers to put the economic impact of the device decision ahead of doing the right thing and doing your best? And then the final thing is a simple rule that I think we could all live by, and that's the golden rule. And that's uh, doing others as you would have them do unto you. And I think that if, 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 I would make a, if I would make an evil for myself and for my wife, and then I make you know, some lesser device with not as good of a working characteristics for a patient because the reimbursement isn't that good, I'm, I'm being fiscally responsible but it's, it's a challenge from a golden rule standpoint. So I don't want to wax and wane too much on, uh, on these three because they, they kind of delve into that arena. But, but, but let's assume that we're doing the right thing, we're doing our best, and we're treating other people the way we want to be treated. But guess what? Shit still happens, right? So what do we do? Well, if I've got muscles or I've got joints that are starting to act up, um, I remind the patient that we said that could happen. Hopefully they recall that. They usually do. And then I say, let's try every other night. It could be even every third night. Let's, let's try to ease you into that. Uh, and I remind them of the conversation I had about touching their toes. And they usually get that. But let's try every other night. They tried that. And I got to tell you a funny story. I, I treated my uh, daughter's mother-in-law. So that's our outlaws. Great family. We love them to death. Get along great with them. Vacation with them and everything. We treated her in three or four days into her treatment. She's loving her new device. She's not snoring. She's sleeping better, more rested, feels great. Her husband wears a CPAP. She's got no appliance. But about day four or five, I can't remember exactly which, she gets really sore jaw. So I say, no problem. It happens. We talked about it. So try every other night. She tries every night for like a week or 10 days. She's really good about it. It's not getting any better. So we move her backwards. We backed her up two millimeters. She tried that every other night for a while. She didn't get better. We backed her up four millimeters. I've never done that before. Never done that since, actually. I backed a few up two millimeters. And that's just me, you know, guessing it in, in the 50%-ish range of, of the of range of motion that maybe that was too aggressive of a starting position. I mean, not thinking it was in the beginning, and it turns out it was, because how do they know? It's, it's five minutes in my office, not eight hours a night. So we backed her up four millimeters, and then it took us about four months to walk her from minus four to minus three to minus two to minus one to zero. Now she's at plus one, and she's back in therapy. So we have this ability to reposition and come back. We also want to think about the symmetrical uh, uh, advancement of the mandible, if it's asymmetrical, and think about that. Irritation, dry, wet, we talked about if there's irritation, we can smooth something that's rubbing or bothering. 
You can recontour that. It's, it's interesting. We, we create these comfort bumps on the pH, on the precision herbs that we have. And some doctors uh, don't want them at all because the patients, some of their patients complain more about the comfort bump than the screw. And then we have other doctors who love the comfort bump because it prevents their patients from complaining about the screw. So there's no wrong answer there. It's just, what do I need to do for my patient to smooth off an area that's irritating or rough? I know that John Carollo, a good friend of mine, developed a taper design and we should have named it after him on our device, but where the posterior ramps taper up a little bit more because as you advance the mandible, you notice that sometimes those ramps will engage a little bit early. So he, he developed that taper on that. It also, by the way, prevented one of the more common irritations that we'll see in, in some patients when the mandible gets further advanced and that coronary process pushing forward through the soft tissue bumps into the distal buccal portion of the maxillary device. And we'll see that sometimes, we've all seen that. If we have tooth movement or bite changes, and we're gonna try and recapture that. I've seen, um, I can't think of the name of the device, but there's a, an orthodontic device that uh, with some elastics that helps to try to get the mandible back into its position. Uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. Someone should put it in the chat box. They'll know what it is. Uh, not Crozat, that's with, uh, for expansion, but somebody, somebody will know what it is. Gosh, it's gonna come to me. But usually you're looking at an orthodontic solution, maybe a restorative solution or orthodontic surgery solution. If it's the end all that somebody has to get their teeth back to touching again, you know, I guess, like I've got a deep overbite. And so my, my mandible does not want to go back in the morning. My mandible says to me, you've got a deep overbite and you shouldn't have one. And wouldn't you like to have your vertical be uh, a little different and maybe down and forward just a little bit in a more comfortable position. And so now all the neuromuscular people get to clap and, and say, isn't that great? And, and, and probably that would be more comfortable for me. I, I do fine, but I, I don't do good with really chewy foods. I don't chew gum. Uh, eating a bagel is challenging for me. So I don't tend to chew as well as I probably could from a mechanical standpoint. So sometimes those bite changes that are coming in, in a funny sense that are, that are more airway centric might have a real positive impact on us. Breakage and repair. Um, that's an important one because breakage and repair, we've got uh, the ability with the iterative type advancement designs in these uh, middle platforms from precision devices of just substituting one of the other arches out. So if I'm wearing a lower one advancement and, and my lower one breaks, I can wear an upper two with a lower zero. And then if that was too far protrusive for me or uncomfortable, then you could just uh, grind on one of the posts a little bit and make that an upper one and a lower zero and that patient could stay in therapy. So it's a real advantage that that patient doesn't have to get back in and get new impressions because of the digital process and they, uh, it's all stored and we can just remake another device off of that and that there's a, an opportunity for them to wear a different device. And if somebody's got a precision herbs, we're finding that we get, just like every other manufacturer gets, we get some, some breakage of the arms, some breakage of the devices. Um, what's interesting to note when we look at ours, most of the uh, failures we have in, a, in, a, in the herbs design device are not catastrophic. What I mean by that is the arm might bend because it didn't break away from the acrylic platform, or in our case, uh, down the road, maybe we'll have an Evo platform. So it doesn't break away from the platform. That's catastrophic, you gotta remake the device. If the arm bends and I have a box full of arms, I can pick up another arm and screw that on there and replace that right away. So that's, that's a good advantage. And then certainly from an allergic standpoint, it's really about changing materials. We've seen so little allergic reaction to the polymethylmethacrylates that, uh, and, and we have not had a single case to the uh, MG6 technology that's been uh, a real advantage for us. So 
So we've got informed consent, we've got prevention, and then we've got treatment. So we've got some really uh, robust ways of, of looking at uh, talking through, uh, designing for, and then little things that we can do to treat those patients that uh, might have an issue. So if we began with the end in mind, then I would say end with the beginning in mind. And um, if managing side effects feels important to you, there are a plethora of things, a plethora of things that we could do uh, to manage them better or manage them differently. Some of them we couldn't do years ago. The, the literature that physicians still read is often still rife with, you will have side effects, you will have TMJ pain, you will have breakage, you will have irritation, you will have tooth movement. And that's just not true anymore. When we look at the number of patients out of 100 um, that had to discontinue treatment because of side effects or lost their bite relationship because of side effects or had tooth movement and open contacts that would bother somebody because of side effects, most of them are gone. The, the, the new precision uh, device designs are affording us an opportunity to treat patients a little bit differently and get different results that are more suggestive. So I'm suggesting a new category of mandibular advancement devices. Have a little fun with this. Um, there's the old boil and bite customizable over the counters. Then there's the, let's call it a generalized indefinite design. They're lab fabricated. And then I would argue we could look at precision medical device solutions. And that's what I think we should ask our industry to strive for. We should ask all of the manufacturers to be able to transfer the bite position accurately, to have symmetrical titration advancement, to have materials that are less reactive, to be able to have design characteristics that allow us to mitigate and manage for side effects, to have smaller devices that require less dose, less advancement. I think it is fair for us to take the payer's position, to take the physician's position, certainly to take our position and to protect the patient and ask for a stronger, more robust kind of designs that will allow us to have easier, better, lower risk treatment outcomes for patients. Michael, guide me through some questions, brother. <laughs> Why do you seem more angelic as the night has progressed? Like you're illuminated. So, <laughs> so, so I'm ready to do the... Is this the real thing or is this fantasy? Um, <clears throat> that's what it's looking like. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina at the ASM meeting. I think we talked about that earlier. And um, I had lit the room, I thought, perfectly for the beginning of the webinar. But as the time is passing, we're uh, losing more and more light and it's getting darker. Is that a little bit better? Yeah, you're good, man. Um, okay, I, we, we do have a boatload of questions. Um, so... I'm just going to start rattling them off. No apparent order. Um, can you explain why too much protrusion past the sweet spot can worsen OSA? Yeah, there's a, <clears throat> it's been described in the literature. There's a sort of a reflex reaction that happens with the musculature when the mandible uh, goes past some point and, and the, you don't experience it with everybody. Uh, the, the thought is that generally more protrusion, uh, dose related, more advancement, uh, it just makes sense you're opening the airway more, but at some point that becomes like a muscle reaction, uh, reflex reaction that works against that or fights that. And so that's why that can happen. I just reviewed a case with somebody today who hadn't gone too far, but at zero got a very marginal uh, result, went forward, it got worse, went forward again, it got worse. And they said, what do I do? And I said, well, you might be over titrated at your bike position. 
So the matrix studies that John um, Remmers did with Aaron Mosca and Shuresh Sharkandi and that group showed that there's a percentage of the population that responds at 10% protrusion and some that respond at 20 and some that don't respond to you get to 90% protrusion. And it's like a bell curve. <clears throat> so if we've got this kind of 50-ish, 60-ish, you know, treatment position that most of us are thinking about, that's good, but there's people at both ends. Yeah. And it might not be expedient for me to start everybody at zero millimeters because it'll take me like six months to titrate them. So I start them at 50% and I realize, and John Brummers and I have, have had this talk, I might be over titrating some patients, but I'm not usually in that zone where I'm getting that reflex reaction. It's actually a muscle reflex thing. Got it. Cool. Uh, next one. Do you take an MRI? This is from Viet Nguyen. Um, do you take an MRI to <laughs> diagnose TMJ internal derangement and degeneration before oral appliance? No. Cool. Uh, Dr. Andrew. <laughs> it's going to drive him crazy that I just said no, but that's okay. It sounds like you and I have a, or he, he and you have an ongoing relationship here because he's made a couple of cool comments in the chat all right um dr andrew uh i have a few new patients who report tmg pain tmj pain and or bite change that's significant enough to make them want to discontinue treatment and even request a refund i've coached through palliative therapy reinforced the need for am repositioning device reset the devices but with no effect they're disenchanted and frankly feels like he's failed them what do you do? So, so first off, let's forget about the refund thing. Second off, you haven't failed anybody. Um, if you did the right thing and you did your best and you treated them the way you'd want to be treated, you know, this only works in, and remember, mild or moderate, it's going to work 90% of the time, 94% of the time. In, and in severe, if you add severe to the mix, it may be 80% of the time. So we're going to have a success percentage. That means there will be failures. There will be patients who, who because they have, uh, low arousal threshold, or they have weak pharyngeal, pharyngeal dilator muscles, or they have high loop gain, or they have mechanical inability to advance far enough that for some reason we cannot treat them. That is not our fault. That is not our problem. This is not a blame game. We, yeah. uh, we, we uh, gave them this blood pressure medication. It didn't work. They need a different one. We yeah. did this heart stent for them. It didn't work. They need open heart surgery. Uh, we did chemotherapy and, and that didn't work. We're going to try radiation. This is medicine, brothers and sisters. It's not dentistry. This right. is not how it works. I'm going to come back to inform before you perform those surprises. I talk to patients and I say, you know, with yours being mild, I got to tell you, we're about 90% successful. When I say we're about 90% successful. Yeah. Um, I'm telling them, I'm not emphasizing, but I'm telling them we're 10% not successful. Yeah. And so that can happen. Uh, nobody gives them their money back. If they've had a CPAC for six months, and they're not wearing it. They don't get their money back. So forget that. We, my, my daughter used to say to me, Kimberly, she would say to me, dad, you got to harden your heart. It's really tough. But can you imagine being a physician and walking out, telling somebody that their child died or their spouse died? That's got to be so hard. And we talk about losing a tooth or an implant fail or something like that drives us nuts, right? Crown came off and this device didn't work. And so I have to look at the patient and say, I am so sorry, Michael. This just is not working for you. You're going to have to go back and try CPAP. Yep. Yep. Surgery didn't work. You got to do something else. Yeah. Nobody asked for the money back. It's a, it's a different ball game. And that's, that's not the main focus. We're on the same page and that, you know, but and, Andrew, to your, to your main question, 
it's what Mark said. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the best that you can. Sometimes it's not going to fix the problem and you got to be okay with that in order for the patient to be okay with that. Yep. All right. On a light, on a lighter side, uh, Jason infamous Tierney came out and said he was the one that asked about the mustard stain. Uh, (laughs) So, all right. Um, Tell him it's better than tapioca stain. (laughs) I'm not going to be the messenger there. Uh, Okay. So uh, Sarah asked for patients who sleep alone. We often get asked, how will I know it's working? So um, quality of sleep, you know, has so many characteristics. We use an app for a lot of patients called Snore Lab, S-N-O-R-E-L-A-B. It's free. It records every other night, um, carries three nights of data. If they pay five bucks, it'll do every night and they can listen to their whole night's sleep. It'll give them a sleep score. I tell them not to worry about the numerical value of the score, but to look at the uh, number of minutes that they spent in uh, epic kind of snoring. And that's a really good metric for them to use. But that still doesn't tell them that it's working because that's one part of it. I tell them that most of the time, thank goodness, the snoring and the HI score go together, but sometimes they don't. That's another thing we have to set up. Sometimes your HI score comes down and the snoring doesn't. And sometimes your snoring comes down and the HI doesn't. Doesn't usually happen. They usually go together, but once in a while we see that, let's hope that doesn't happen. Off we go. So they say, hey, I go, look, you're doing great. Your HI score is down. They go, but my spouse hates you because they're still snoring. Tough shit. Can't fix it. Can't fix everything. And so we, we have to set those things up in conversations. It's so important and to not be defensive about it. And so, yeah, uh, yeah that Snorlab app is really helpful, but, but, but also quality of life. So we ask people to keep an inventory when you're at this setting, when you're at that setting, how did you sleep? Did you feel more rested? Did you feel like you needed a nap? How many times did you get up to go pee? What, whatever was bothering you about sleep? Uh, here's another uh, thing that I've, I've learned from friends. They said, so if, if your treatment is successful, what's the one thing you really hope will happen? And they go, ah, that I quit snoring or ah, that I don't get up four times to go to pee at night or that I don't have to feel like I take a nap. Write that down. Yep. Come back to them later because they might say, well, I'm still getting up to go pee. But you told me the most important thing was not even to take a nap. And you told me you're feeling much more rested during the day. Yep. So getting them to focus back on, you know, the positive things. Yep. So the that's actually some of the verbiage and stuff that we go through in the course uh, to plug still, that. Just to add. I mean, emotional pain points, getting the patients to define those and connecting with them as part of the motivation to move forward. And then being able to circle back for the mm-hmm. popularized term there, we're going to circle back to those pain points and see what's been alleviated. Everybody's going to have those that moves forward with treatment. Otherwise they wouldn't pay you a dime for the treatment because they don't think they need it. Yeah. Really? Um, all right. So, uh, Ooh, I'm going answer, to answer one that I just saw. Can you reline Evo? No. <laughs> this is me off that we can't maybe someday, but I don't see it in the very near future. If I knew a patient was going to have a lot of dental work done, I'd make them an acrylic device. Um, if, if they're going to have one crown done, maybe up to one crown in each quadrant, I could probably adjust that and still have enough retention and not worry about it. Um, but no, we don't have a reline capability for Evo. That's for sure. Okay. Um, Kelsey asks, are there any online videos or at-home tricks or exercises you can give a patient who is starting to experience permanent bite changes? Yeah, the ADSM has um, some uh, muscle activities and a handout sheet available um, on their website. Uh, if, you, if you don't have access to that, email me individually at mmurphy at It's right there on the, I guess it's right there on the slide. 
and I can send you uh, what I've got. Happy to do that. Um, again, prevention is the key there. <laughs> yep. It's a lot easier to prevent it than deal with it afterwards, for sure. Yep. Uh, Andrew said, uh, not effective is very different from cannot wear because it hurts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Great point, man. Um, <clears throat> compare subjective results to AHI results. Which one uh, from Frank? You kind of did that already. We emphasize the subjective results, but the AHI is going to be your, that's your scorecard. Uh, yeah. Right, wrong, or different. It's going to be the scorecard on a sleep test. So, and it's interesting. Today, today, AHI score is how we kind of all get paid. It was successful. The HI score came down. Yeah. You and your physicians agree on a target. Maybe some physician is looking for under five, unrealistic, uh, under 10, and a 50% reduction, I think, is a really good goal. Um, the STAR trial for Inspire, the STAR trial was the clinical trial that got Inspire a severe clearance for OSA treatment. It's a very expensive treatment. It has uh, approximately 65% uh, efficacy and 75% adherence and 32% side effects. And their target was reducing the patient's AHI to below 20. So if a physician is talking to you about, well, that patient's still 17 and they were 61, you should go, well, in the STAR trial, that would have been a success. So if that was an Inspire patient, we would call that a success. So I'm not, I'm not saying you fight back, but you have to have these things in your armamentarium. So the other thing about AHI is AHI, we do not have a correlation of AHI to cause mortality. We don't have a correlation between AHI and cardiovascular events, the SAVE trial. We don't have a correlation between AHI and necessarily uh, a, a direct correlation or a high P-score on quality of, of sleep. What we do see is that if we look at the amount of time they spend, the amount of time and how deep they go below 90, we call that the hypoxic burden, that correlates very well to all-cause mortality. Um, heart rate changes and, and changes to the heart rate max and minimum seem to correlate to all-cause mortality. There's a recent article in uh, JCSM on that. So we're, we're probably going to see this metric of AHI fade in the next year or two or three, and we're going to find new metrics, most likely hypoxic burden and heart rate, delta and heart rate variability. Can't wait for that, man. I've been watching this move, the same movie for almost two decades. This HI is getting old, but uh, yeah. we're getting closer. All right, I'm going to keep going here. Um, uh, Abby asked, how do we join A2S? Abby, I think you're asking about the study club. We have something called the Pivot Study Club. It'd probably be great to talk to a coach uh, before you just cold join that, know what you're expecting. Mark, I think you have a slide on scheduling a call for a coach. I do. Yeah. Uh, one more. There we go. Uh, so there's a QR code there, Abby, and anybody else. Uh, Awaken to Sleep does coaching and diagnostics. We want to help you guys do more work. Uh, so we have sleep coaches available. If you go to that link, you can ask us any questions that you want. We can talk about the study club or anything that we can do to help you, even if it's not something that we sell. We want to help you do more work and help more folks. That's really what it's about. Uh, it sounds like a Hallmark card, but it really does actually matter to us. So yeah, appreciate you guys being here. Um, dang, so man, I'm going to throw something up here. There's a, there's a comment in the chat that Tashi's got up there about a suggestion of a myofunctional straw 
water bottle, the strings of the tongue to rest on the palate. Totally true. That's absolutely true. Um, and it can reduce snoring. You know, anything that's helping to promote nasal breathing, anything that's helping to, so we're at the ASM meeting and I have this Excite OSA therapy, which creates, by the way, a 40% reduction and, and it's only for mild, but a 40% reduction in uh, AHI scores by increasing the pharyngeal uh, dilator muscle tone, learning the didgeridoo, learning a wind instrument. I mean, we could go on and on. Those are all good things um, to, to help uh, mitigate and work around some of these things and, and finding the right combination. I love some of that creativity of some of those ideas in myofunctional yeah. therapy. You know, I, I, we had an hour and so we're not going to cover everything off. And yeah. Those are, those are really good suggestions. A good piece of information for sure. All right. I want a short answer to this one. Cause it's my question and nobody else's. Have you ever had somebody that actually learned how to play the didgeridoo or anything remotely like, yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can three shape scans for AI appliances be reused to fabricate Evo appliances? Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so, so any scan, if there hasn't been a change in the dentition, the shape, the position of the teeth, a lot of dentistry done or anything like that, um, a reasonable length of time between the time the scan is done and when the device is made, yeah, that would work just fine. Um, I have worn every single prototype um, that we've made at Prosomnus, and my scans are stored from an original analog impression and analog bite that was taken in 2013. And I got my most recent device, um, the Evo, probably last August, uh, well below, it was in the animal testing phase. And so that, that device was in 2019. So that was six years, no, that was in 2021. So that was eight years after my, roughly eight years after my impression was taken, um, still delivering the device. Now, truth be told, I've had a new crown done on the tooth. So when I put it in, the upper fits great. And the lower is too tight around that tooth. It is too tight. It pinches and cuts. It's not just get used to it tight. And so I have to just ream that out just a little bit and then I'm fine. Cool. Um, Gloria asked, how do you know which device to begin with? Is there a course on designs? All right, Gloria, you should probably register for this weekend's course. Yeah. Because uh, we, we, we actually have one. I was supposed to announce this a minute ago, but we have too many questions. We have one spot left at the discount. So if you want to claim to fame of buying Dr. Mark Murphy at a discount, that's your ticket. So I, should, so <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't answer that. She should have to pay for the course to take that. So, so I'm going to answer it anyhow. So this, Do is it. Going to, this is going to sound super self-serving. So for me, I love the way Evo performs so well that I start with Evo because I like it. I like it for so many reasons. All the reasons we talked about, less dose, more comfortable, smaller design, anatomical, all these things. Great. Flexible material. And then I have to find a reason not to use Evo. And there are reasons. And I've told you some of those tonight. I might need micro titration. So I need a jack screw device. So I need a dorsal. I need a CALP. Maybe it's a Medicare patient and I don't have a workaround like I do. Uh, and, and I have to use a herbs device. Or maybe it's a patient who only has six upper and lower anterior teeth. And I'm going to use a, a, a tap device. Or maybe it's a patient that's against us and I want a soft line of material. I don't like soft, or maybe it's a patient that's freaking out about their veneers, so I'm going to make them a printed nylon Panthera. So those are all devices I can make. And, and so I work for Prasomnus, and so, oh my God, I'm getting fired tomorrow because I said other device names that I've used. Well, no, I, it, one size doesn't fit all, but I start with, with Evo, and, and then it's hard to get me off the Evo, and you have to have some of those special conditions. Yeah. Cool. When somebody says they have a go-to device, that's usually what they mean. Yep. Awesome. Um, 
Next question for Medicare patients. Uh, they want a Herb Supplants. How can they find out you delivered in Evo? <laughs> Brian, I'm going to recommend that you email Mark uh, <laughs> that one. Not no, so on a it, recorded webinar. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I, I can I can kind of answer that. So so for for a Medicare patient, I will deliver two devices. I deliver device one that meets the Medicare guidelines. That could be an Evo. I'm not an Evo. That could be a Herbst. That could be a TAP. That could be a Snorhook. There are 81 different PDAC, Medicare approved AIM guideline devices. Then I sell them a backup device called Evo and they sign an ABN. So they sign a POD for the compliant device for Medicare guidelines. And then they buy a backup device from me. Uh, and those can both be made off the same scans or same models. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Okay. Um, regarding device breakage, this is from Kenneth. Do you yep. have a time period that you will typically repair or remake for free for the patients? And then somebody else asked, how do you handle those? Do you charge? So we'll kind of lump those together. Yeah, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask because I make my living full-time working for Prosomnus. And so I get to practice dental sleep medicine one day a week, part-time. And so I'm not really that worried about making money. But, but during the warranty period, which is three to five years for um, devices, five years for a, a Medicare device, yeah. I'm going to get my, I'm going to get it repaired for free. If my repair rate is within the norms of like under three, four, maybe 5% of the highest, I just roll with it. And, and if I had a much higher repair rate, I would start to ask myself, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> because 5% is the target we should shoot for. And if I've got 10 or 15% of my devices are breaking, I'm going to say, why? Are, the, are my devices poorly designed? Are they weak? Am I doing something wrong with my bite? Am I having my patient do something wrong with them? Am I training my patients wrong? I start to look for the cause, root cause analysis. Yeah. Um, and so I don't charge for those appointments at all. You can charge for repair. You can charge under certain circumstances uh, mm -hmm. for some of those things. But I think those also are red flags to um, inviting, what do you call it? Audits from Medicare and stuff like that. So I want to stay away from that. Yeah. Uh, Martin asked a very pointed question. Would you be willing to send your informed consent? <laughs> Absolutely. Email me and I'll, I'll ship you one out. No problem. It's cool. pretty standard. Pretty standard. Uh, Viet wants to know uh, what's the percentage of patients developing um, or worsening of TMD specifically with uh, yeah. the prosomnus appliances you've used? So I would have, I would love to have been able to have that question asked and answered when, when my answer could have been zero, but it's not. In fact, it's really uh, humorous for me in, in a sense, kind of ironic. I published a poster at the ADSM last year on dose, where I started patients, how much I advanced them, what side effects they had. And none of those patients discontinued treatment. It was a series of, I think, 55 consecutive patients. None of them discontinued treatment because of side effects. And I'm not crapping you, but about a month and a half, six weeks, maybe two months, after the poster abstract was presented and published, one of the patients' jaws were getting sore and had to discontinue treatment. So now it's now it's uh, one out of so it's two percent. Now it's one. There's always one. <laughs> yeah, I could have said at the time if you read if you read my poster from last year, it says none discontinued treatment. It is now a lie, and now there is one patient discontinued. At the time of this writing, that's correct. <laughs> and I'm sorry. All right. I'm sorry. I'm so transparent, but I'm just not good at lying. That's all right, man. We appreciate that. Uh, all right. So Frank asked, uh, what do you use to titrate out to determine the sweet spot? 
across multiple nights. Yeah. So I, I have most patients go uh, a millimeter about every five days. Could be three to seven days. I don't care. But I tell them about every five days, make some notes about how you felt it. When, when they go forward and they don't like it, come back. When they find a spot that they think they sleep the best at, snore the least at, and they're getting that, I call it subjective signs and symptoms, then I have them wear a pulse oximeter for two nights, upload the data, I read it. And if that pulse oximetry data matches their subjective symptoms, I send them back to the physician for the follow-up sleep test. Yeah. But I'd have no problem with a night owl and rapid titration, a night owl and periodic treatments every time they vent. I'd have no problem with that. I'd have no problem at all. Yeah. Lots of different ways. Cool. Uh, which pulse ox do you use? Um, I, I've got a bunch of these from a company called CMS Health. They're very inexpensive. They're under $200, 120, 30, 40 bucks, something like that. Uh, the new ones are rechargeable. The old ones were battery operated. So I go through a lot of AAA batteries. Grandkids toys. Yep. <laughs> you use them and Costco. then. Costco batteries, yep. baby. Yep. The expensive ones don't last more than a night. Um, all right. Uh, last one so far. Uh, Tal asks a, a follow-up question to that patient, really with the dry mouth, mouth opening, elastics don't work, all that stuff. Okay. Uh, is there a way to fuse the upper and the lower? They've got a herpst right now. Is there a way to fuse the upper and the lower? Um, give them a blowhole, man. I mean, so, give, so, give them some way to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would say, yeah, you could, you know, it's acrylic, right? So if you've got an acrylic device, you could use acrylics to uh, fix those together. You could, um, instead of elastics, you could use a wire. On the, on the elastics, there's, there's, you know, some things I could think of to be creative. Um, and most patients wouldn't like that. Um, if you've ever slept with a temporary device like a Blue Pro, um, that's weird to get up in the morning and think that my jaw is stiff from not having moved for eight hours, wiggling around, loosening it up. And, and so most patients don't like that. But if, if that's what would be right for a particular patient, I might use wires. I don't know. Th those are the things I'm thinking of. I always worry about elastics and wires, though, that somebody aspirating or something like that. So. It's another reason I don't use many elastics. Yep. You know, Abby, Abby snuck a question in. Uh, what do you do if you have a patient who's having muscle joint issues at plus one or two and you move them back to end to end and they were complaining about heavier clenching and grinding? Right now they're focused on nasal breathing, but want to know your thoughts. So interesting. So I, I would never be thinking about end to end as a, any kind of a metric or starting point. And, and Abby, hear this, not as criticism, but just as a very practical point. I'm going to lean forward to the camera and gross everybody out. But um, I have a seven millimeter range of motion. And so when I bite, I have a tremendous overbite, 100%. When I slide forward, that's all I have. I cannot get my lower incisors in front of my upper incisors. Can't do it. So if you tried to start me at end to end and then go plus one, plus two, I'll hate you in the first morning because that's max protrusion for me. That's seven millimeters. I have a seven millimeter range and I will be very uncomfortable that next day. I can tell you for sure. So that's the first thing I would say. So, but let's, let's assume for a second that I'm a more normal patient and I can come further than that. My range of motion is 14 and you know, okay, great. Um, then, then, uh, then I would, I would just, I would move them back. Um, I would, and, and if they think they're having more clenching and grinding and bruxism, they probably are because they're closer to where they want to, uh, they're closer to their home base, to their, let's say, pseudo CR that they have. And that's where the first motion is usually the strongest. So that's always going to be something that you've got to balance out. And, and again, if, if, if they do a lot of clenching and grinding and they're breaking a bunch of devices, 
And when I bring them out, they get a lot of jaw muscle and soreness and tenderness. You harden your heart and say, maybe you got to wear a CPAP. Yep. And then you, there's things you can do like, like a Herbst is friendly for lateral play for Bruxers. Or if I'm using an Evo, which is really durable, but I could still, I could add one millimeter on each side to widen the corridor between those posts, which gives them a little bit more lateral play. And we know that the first movement is the most fierce movement. And as they get further out into an eccentric position, there's a lot less force. So they're less likely to break the post. And I don't care if they clench that up, but most, most patients don't do what you're describing. And I, and I know you know that most patients don't clench grandma with these devices and they, that solves a lot of those problems. So, yeah, man, you always hey, bring it, but so you I'm started just, dropping I'm proud of something tonight that I can't say I've done very often. I left room for questions. And we're still 20 minutes after the hour, man. <laughs> but I but I got the content done by nine o'clock. That's true. That's and it's only true. five o'clock somewhere, right? Yep. It's five o'clock somewhere in Alaska. It is no. <laughs> there you go. All right, guys. Uh, we'll wrap it up tonight. Team, if you can put the uh, CE link in the chat. As a reminder, everybody, you have access to discounted course tickets. You have access to a free coaching call. And you have access to your CE, but you got to fill out the survey. Survey. It's Easy not even nine twenty my time, man. I don't know what to say. <laughs> fill out the survey, seventeen and a half seconds or so, as fast as your little finger can click. Uh, appreciate you guys showing up tonight. There's a whole bunch of you, and uh, we look forward to next time, Dr. Mark. Any parting words? Do the right thing. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. And do your best. <laughs> I, try, I try to make it sound serious, but I'm, I'm not accomplishing that very well. <laughs> we appreciate you, man. Seriously. Peace. Thank you again for tonight. Thank you. Yep. All right, everybody. Have a good evening. We will catch you next time. Catch you on the flip-flop. On the flip-flop. That was for Tammy Bexton in Hawaii. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.